Hi, you're listening to iiPod, the official podcast of the Duke Lemur Center in Durham, North Carolina. I'm Matt Bortz, Curator of Fossils at the Duke Lemur Center. And I'm Megan McGrath, Education Programs Manager at the Duke Lemur Center. We're going to get started today with what is really the focus of iiPod, a discussion about the animals that we study at the Duke Lemur Center. Lemurs are the main living group that gets studied here. We also currently house bush babies, and in the past, some other strepsorines that have been here have called the DLC home. But in general, researchers come from Duke University, around the country, around the world, to collect data on the living colony of lemurs. And all of that research is done using non-invasive methods. So the lemurs can passively participate in research by just going about their normal routine in the forest while a researcher observes their behavior or collects their poop. Or they can actively participate in research trials through positive reinforcement training. But either way, no lemurs are harmed in the making of our science. One of our favorite lemurs, it's, it's even the lemur on the logo for the DLC, is the I.I. It also has a name that makes for a really obvious podcast pun, so, to get the II pod off on the right foot, we wanted to start with a series of conversations with II experts. My name is Adam Hartstone Rose, and uh, I am a professor of biological sciences at North Carolina State University. Adam also has an adjunct appointment at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences in Raleigh, and has worked with many other museums and zoos. But most of all, I am a bona fide lemur lover. Um, so I actually got both my undergrad and my PhD at Duke. Where he studied biological anthropology and anatomy. He went on to author dozens of scholarly articles and research papers while serving as the principal investigator at the Hearthstone Rose Research Lab at North Carolina State University. So he's just a short drive from our Duke Lemur Center and joins our team in its non-invasive research. And he studies the anatomy of lemurs and other mammals. Uh, during this interview, Adam discussed some specimens that his lab received from the Duke Lemur Center. No lemurs ever harmed or euthanized for research. But we also love continuing to learn from these amazing creatures even after they've died of natural causes. So let's start our first deep dive on the iiPod. How did you get into all of this, everything that you've been studying or currently are studying, what sparked it? I was 17 days old when my father first took me to the American Museum of Natural History. And the, as the story goes, um, I was a horrible baby and I would cry unless I was being like held and carried around while somebody paced with me. And growing up in Manhattan, my apartment was very small. And so my father rapidly got sick of walking in circles in the apartment. And he thought, well, the museum's a great place to walk. And so the museum was just 12 blocks from my house when I was growing up. And, um, and, and so my father took me there when I was a little baby. Basically, I spent every weekend, um, of my childhood going to the museum, um, at first just with my dad. And then my brother was born a couple of years later. And the three of us would go to the museum every weekend. And I grew up with this, this, um, this amazing love of science and biology in a place that is as like biologically fake and sterile as possible, right? So Manhattan is all concrete and asphalt and like even Central Park is like all contrived. And yet, um, I grew up, you know, in Africa and Asia and, and eventually, um, I discovered this crazy store called Maxilla and Mandible that sold skulls and skeletons and things like that. And and so when I was 10 years old, the manager of the store handed me a broom and he told my father that he'd put me in a taxi when I was done. And that's where I started learning about all the scientific names of species and 
Um, eventually, I started working down in the basement where they mounted skeletons and prepared, you know, skulls. And uh, and once I had basically learned everything I could at that store, um, my the the manager who became, at that point became like almost like a, a second father to me. He organized for me to start working at the museum with some of their friends over there. And so I started working in mammalogy when I was 12. And then when I was 14, I started working in anthropology. There, he worked with renowned anthropologist Ian Tattersall. Dr. Tattersall is credited as the first Western scientist to see golden crown Shafak in the wild, now known as... So, Propagus Tattersall, In 1974, in Madagascar. When it was studied years later by the Duke Lemur Center, the researchers named it for Dr. Tattersall. Adam's research continued into his teens, thanks to many mentors that followed Dr. Tattersall. And so when I was a teenager, when I was 16, I went to Madagascar for the first time. I missed like my PSATs and all the stuff. And all my teachers basically were able to exact whatever kind of toll they wanted from me. So Adam had to do a science fair project. Which I thought was really beneath me. And I did not want to do this. Of course, he focused on the lemurs he learned about in Madagascar. Called Through the Eyes of a Lemur. Um, and it was about nocturnality, morphology that related to nocturnality and lemurs. The project earned him a scholarship for New York University. And when Duke found out that the greatest lemurologist under the age of 18 was about to head to NYU, they could not stand it, right? I had to go to Duke. And so they offered me a scholarship as well. And so it was a, it was a great opportunity as an undergrad. Adam went on to earn his doctorate from Duke as well, and then began to center his research on what he calls all the levels of deadness. That means in his lab at North Carolina State, Adam's team compares the anatomy of different animals like primates and carnivores and researches what is called functional morphology. That's the study of actual structures within organisms and how those structures work. They might look at chewing or grasping. So the team observes living animals, dissects recently dead animals, and... The next level of deadness is skulls and teeth and bones. So that's like what we call like museum level dead. And so we do a lot of analysis of osteology as well. So for instance, we might study the skulls of lemurs to see what we can learn about the skulls relative to the muscles that we have dissected. And that allows us to then take it to the last level of deadness, which is fossils. So that's the most dead you can be is extinct level dead. And so we do a lot of paleo as well. And we might look at the skulls of extinct lemurs and interpret them based on what we learn about the skulls of living lemurs. And we do this um, in lemurs. We do this a lot of work in carnivores. Whether working among primates like lemurs or in carnivores is level two or three deadness. Adam zeroes in on what he finds most fascinating in biology. I also find anatomy beautiful. Take the forearm of a primate. The way that all of these muscles function to create specific movements of fingers and the wrist, etc., I think is really beautiful and elegant. And it's really amazing to be able to make the links between specific morphological states and behavioral uh, specialties and adaptations. In his studies, Adam's team ranked not only deadness, but also weirdness, particularly of primates. So the weirdest primate in the world is actually humans, but a close second to that is the eye. So the eye is is just a bizarre species. They're the largest nocturnal primates. They're the earliest branch off of the lemur phylogeny. There's only one living species in their whole family, um, and there aren't very many other uh, primates that that can say that. 
They're the only primates that have ever growing teeth. They echolocate, which is a rare thing in mammals in general. And as far as I know, IIs are the only mammals that echolocate the way they echolocate, right? With, with that rapid finger tapping. One of my favorite facts about them is they have inguinal, uh, mammaries. So they nurse between their legs for no apparent reason whatsoever. You know, that's, that's a strange thing. Like IIs are just weird animals. They have the largest brain relative to their body size of any of the lemurs. And then there's the fingers. They are disproportionately long. Like, imagine if your fingers were as long as your forearm. Now imagine your ring finger was as skinny as a twig and can bend in any direction 360 degrees around your hand. It's it's weird. Like, it, it's really, it's like impossible to picture. They they also have claws, which is not a thing other lemurs have on their hands. It's It's very weird, and I guess the best way to describe them... And their hands, for folks who haven't seen them before, is these long, skinny fingers that almost look like spider legs extending out from their hand. And quite frankly, they don't look all that practical for a creature climbing through the trees. I sometimes think that if IIs had gone extinct, if we only had their skeletons to work with, that we'd probably assume that their fingers were webbed, like a duck foot or a bat's wing or something. Like, they are just long, impractical things that there's no way a thing is climbing through the trees with these things at the ends of their arms. Right. They can do these things with their fingers that no other lemurs can do, no other primates can do. So one of the amazing things that IIs do with these amazing fingers and with gigantic ears and with their incredible brains is they tap forage. So they're the only primate known to do percussive hunting where they tap, tap, tap with that skinny middle finger, listening intently for a nice spot where a bug or a grub might be hiding. And then they have these beaver teeth they can chew in and that's when they can use that tapping finger to its full extent, reaching in any direction inside of the tree, flexing it around, finding the grub, pulling it out, and eating it. So Adam's team wanted to see, are their forearm muscles equally amazing? And the most amazing thing about the finger muscles of an eye is that they are not amazing at all. But by dissecting an eye that had died of natural causes at the lemur center, Adam and his team could take a closer look, starting with some basic anatomy, finding similar structures to what we find if we looked at our own primate bodies. Most of the muscles that you use to curl your fingers or to move your fingers, to extend and flex your fingers or, or move your thumb around, most of that musculature is actually not in your hand, but in your forearm. So if you feel your hand, your hand is not very meaty. In fact, you can feel your bones on the back of your hand. And so most of the force that you're able to produce is, is in your forearm. And if you clench your fist and hold your forearm, you can feel those forearm muscles bulging. And we call those the extrinsic hand muscles, whereas the ones that are in the hand, we call the intrinsic hand muscles. And so when we were dissecting this II a few years ago, we were tracing those extrinsic muscles from the forearm past the wrist and to each finger. And you have special muscles. So for instance, some of my favorite ones, extensor indices is the muscle that allows you to point your index finger. The most adorable one is extensor digiti minimi, which is what allows you to extend your pinky. I always tell my students, this is what allows you to sip tea properly. And as we were tracing some of these extrinsic muscles into the wrist, we found that one of the muscles, a muscle that's called abductor pollicis longus. So Abduction means to move away. The pollux is the thumb, and longus refers to the fact that it's all the way in forearm. It's what allows you to, to hitchhike. You pull your, your thumb up, that's the hitchhiking muscle. As the team got further into the musculature... Then the most remarkable thing was, as we were tracing the tendon of that muscle past the wrist and into the hand, we noticed something crazy. 
that most of it went to the thumb, but some of it went to a completely different place. And it turns out it went to a structure in the front of the wrist at the base of the thumb. And as we started studying that, we realized that this was a structure that nobody had described before. And in fact, not only does that one muscle control the movement of the structure, it's called the pseudothumb. Not only does this muscle uh, control the pseudothumb, but there are two other muscles that attach to the pseudothumb in order to move it in other directions. Was it a one-off? Was this what made the remarkable fingers of I.I.s possible? Well, they had to keep looking. And we went and we looked at other I.I.s in different places. We used an MRI into the forearm without dissecting it so we could see it in three-dimensional space. And we found that all of them have this pseudothumb and these three muscles that help control it. Um, we looked at other specimens and we realized that that little um, sixth digit that we discovered, it even has its own fingerprint, um, which was quite amazing. The findings got a lot of attention in scholarly journals and other more popular publications like the Washington Post, so we've linked some of these articles on our website. It helped that the research was published in October. Uh, we wanted to capitalize on the Halloween buzz because IIs are so creepy, um, mm -hmm. and a lot of media picked it up. Um, our research was in Wired magazine. The journalist wrote about how he was angry that the IIs are not actually giving you the middle finger. Because if you have six fingers, then indeed none is a middle finger. Even in the six or so years I've been at the lemur center and really been learning as much as I can about lemurs and IIs in general, there's been at least two major pieces of information that have not only been like new to me, but new to the world about yeah. IIs. People always like ask me like about how we discovered this anatomy. And it's like that anatomy has existed for thousands, tens of thousands, maybe millions of years. How did nobody notice this before, my hypothesis is that people are distracted by how magnificent the I.I.'s hands are, that they just focus on these bizarre um, fingers that they have, and nobody ever kind of noticed that their wrist has this amazing structure as well. Okay, in all the tours I've given, there is one assumption that I am constantly battling against, so I'd love your help in clearing things up. Which finger is the longest on an I.I.'s hand? That is a really good question. It's the fourth finger. If you look at your hand, your palm, basically the part of your palm that attaches to each of your fingers, there it's all the same length on a human, okay? Maybe your pinky side is a little bit shorter, but in general, it, it goes across in a line. However, in an I.I.'s hand, the middle part of their thumb sticks out further, which is really bizarre, and it has this kind of ball and socket joint so that the finger can kind of swivel around. And then that middle finger extends and is really long and skinny and weird. But in fact, the longest finger is the fourth finger, the ring finger, and it's much more robust. The whole thing looks almost more like a bat, like a cross between a bat hand and a lemur hand. But that fourth finger is more robust. And the IIs actually will rest that third finger on the fourth finger in order to protect it. Because the third finger is so delicate and, and kind of flexible, that means that it's not very strong and it could get snagged on stuff and in the way. And so it's really important that that fourth finger is longer and stronger as kind of like the buddy. It's a buddy system for the third finger. What is the kind of going hypothesis for the other weird finger? It's like six pseudothumb. Why, why have a pseudothumb and why other lemurs wouldn't? First of all, we're not sure that other lemurs don't have a pseudothumb. So we have to look more carefully. So this, the pseudothumb comes off of the carpals. So at the base, your wrist is full of little bones, little knobby bits called carpals. And is a little bone that most primates actually have called a radial sesamoid. So it's a little extra bone at the base of the thumb. 
It exists in most primates, but not humans. So again, humans actually are the weird ones in this, not, not the, not the eye eyes. And that's the bone that became exaggerated and became this pseudo thumb. But I do believe that it is much more emphasized in eye eyes than it is in other primates. And the reason that I think that this occurred is because the eye eyes fingers are so good at their weird thing, which is that tap foraging, that they happen to have been made worse by evolution for finger stuff. It's not good at grasping, right? So if something becomes long and thin and skinny, then you can stick it in holes or you can reach farther or you can eventually evolve into a wing or something like that. What you can't do is you can't also be strong, right? Because there's a trade-off between its basic leverage. Something that's long and skinny is not going to be a good lever for force transmission. And the problem is that an eye eye is a substantial animal. So it's the largest nocturnal primate in the world. It's actually a relatively large lemur, right? It's bigger than most you lemurs. And yet also the eye eye is very arboreal. So it doesn't spend time on the ground. It, it hangs out in trees. It climbs around on branches. And yet it lost the ability to use these amazing fingers for strong grasping, which is something that you need to do in a tree. And so I believe that what happened was evolution allowed this piece of anatomy to become accentuated in order to compensate for the anatomy that was being lost and taken over by this other function. So as eyes became amazing at tap foraging and therefore not so great at grasping, their wrists evolved uh, greater levels of grasping than we would have in other species. We do see this kind of pseudo-thumb adaptation in, in other mammals, most famously in the giant panda. Giant pandas happens to have evolved from bears, and bears lost thumbs. They lost their opposable thumbs. And so that happened early in the bear lineage, but then the panda lineage did something really strange evolutionarily, and that is that they started eating a horrible diet, like the worst diet, which is bamboo, right? So bamboo is 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 unhealthy. It doesn't have a lot of nutrition. It requires a very difficult processing. And one thing that it also requires is a grasping around a piece of bamboo in order to hold it. And so the panda bear actually evolved that same radial sesamoid, the exact same bone that the eye uses in its wrist, elongated. And the same three muscles that move the pseudo-thumb in the eye also move the pseudo-thumb in the panda. An adaptive radiation occurs when an ancestor species arrives in a new place and starts to diversify. Descendant species can take on really different ecological roles from that founding ancestor because there are new opportunities in this new place that weren't there where the animal came from. So Darwin's finches in the Galapagos is a classic example of an adaptive radiation as the finches show up in the Galapagos and there's not a lot of other birds that are doing things like basically being woodpeckers. And so finches become woodpeckers. Lemurs are a great example of an adaptive radiation in Madagascar, and because Madagascar is so isolated, eye-eyes could adapt to take advantage of a niche that only they could occupy because there weren't other animals that were going around eating up all the bugs that were stuck in the tree trunks. One of the reasons that an eye-eye can be quite squirrel-like is because there aren't squirrels in Madagascar, you know, and so that, so that primordial lemur, one branch of them, uh, went down that avenue. Each of us has found extra fascinating things about eye-eyes and their place in the world of lemurs. I think mine is that they're always the exception. 
Like whatever yeah. rule I'm talking about when I'm saying like all primates have this except for eye eyes. Yeah. All lemurs have this except for eye eyes. Like it's always an exception. Like I even was doing a children's presentation where I had like a list of lemur adaptations and then I had like half of those didn't apply to eye eyes. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just really interesting and it makes them such a fun way to talk about things for people of all ages because like they are you don't have to find other animals to compare and contrast just use an eye eye and like compared to the entire rest of their lineage that we know of that's extant and living today and there's like half of the things that are present on an eye eye are like technically wrong for being a yeah. lemur or for being a primate or for at anything else that they're supposed to be related to and one of those exceptional behaviors of the eye eye is that tap foraging so when they are going to hunt for these bugs inside of trees, they're literally tapping along with their middle finger, listening and hearing the echo back to know whether or not there's a bug hiding inside. It's just amazing. One of the things that I didn't appreciate till being at the Weimar Center and watching the tap foraging is the mobility of their ears. The first time I saw it, and it was one of the juveniles that was like learning how to tap forage. She went kind of into full Dumbo mode where she like tipped her ears down like giant yeah. satellite dishes, kind of like focusing on where that sound was coming from. And seeing that kind of mobility, you know, dogs have big floppy ears and elephants have big floppy ears. Like they don't seem that mobile. <laughs> like there's just something about seeing this animal that you could just see it, what was going on in its brain by kind of following where its ears were pointing in a way that it hands were also going. And that was a really amazing kind of adaptation. I mean, I'm biased as a paleontologist. Most of the fossil record of mammals are teeth because teeth are just rocks that are in our faces, essentially. Yeah. And the teeth of the eye eye are amazing. We talk about their, their ever-growing chisel-like incisors, that this is uh -huh. something that only a couple branches of mammals have figured out how to do is just grow their teeth throughout their lives. Rodents, being like the biggest lineage that has really yeah. cracked the code for like, I can wear down the surface of my teeth and keep new stuff coming all the time. But then the thing that we don't talk as much about with eye eyes is their, their back teeth. They have these giant incisors in the front and then these dinky little button things for <laughs> their back molars. When I talk about diets in lemurs, you can see these like points that are on their teeth that are really good for like poking into bugs. And basically, like, you have to get through the shell of a bug in order to get the good, juicy stuff inside. Eye eyes have kind of rodent-like molars, but they're too small for their bodies yeah. in this way that it's like they've overcommitted to their incisors. incisors. In way that if you yeah. found just the molar of an eye eye, you would reconstruct an animal that's maybe the size of a rat. <laughs> but instead, you have this, like, one of the largest lemurs that's alive today that has these tiny little teeth. Um, and what's especially crazy is we have a fossil record for eye eyes that yeah. the mainland kind of ancestors possibly of eye eyes are that like there's an animal called Propato that's from about 20 million years ago and an animal called Plesiopithecus from about 34 million years ago. And they have what look like the beginnings of this incisor that is getting longer and longer, but they also have more like respectable back teeth. So the teeth have gotten smaller over the course of the eye eye lineage. And that is just such a strange trade-off. In observing eye eyes at the Duke Lemur Center, we've also seen the exceptional behavior of the individual eye eyes. We have had particular eye eyes who really take the like use of the tapping finger to an extreme. People are always shocked to find out that that's like the main way an eye eye drinks water. Like they have a perfectly good mouth, 
But no, they mainly drink water with this flimsy, tiny tapping finger that they like scoop a meager amount of water out. Eating an egg is is really yeah (laughs) yeah the eating an egg. um, We have a great video on on our Facebook of if you search for it, that's great. Also, individuals will take it to an extreme where apparently we had one who would even eat a grape by using the tapping finger, (laughs) (laughs) not not popping the grape in their mouth, no, using the tapping finger to actually scoop out all the pulp of the grape. It makes me think of the kids who always peel their grapes before eating them, like. I answered that kid. And then another thing that I think that is underappreciated is how individual eye eyes look really different from each other. If you actually look at a lot of of photographs of eye eyes, then you'll see that individuals have really different markings. They might have more diversity of like, especially face markings than maybe any of the other lemurs. They all have a pretty similar trajectory when they're first born. um, And we, of course, have... Binks, who's taken the internet by storm right now, our newest II baby, um, and he's in the sweet spot is what we call it when they're around three or four months old, which is like peak cuteness. If you go back to like first born Binks, there's this great photo of him where like, I swear his eyes are different shapes and like he's got like the alien. Yeah, and the, it looks like their head is going to fall off their body. It <laughs> but does. that's all it, lemurs. Shafox are like that too. <laughs> and to be fair, I controversial statement. Sorry to all the parents out there, but like newborn baby primates are strange looking like they just are. (laughs) And so like that's that's a universal. But once I eyes hit about three months old, they all go through this really cute phase where all their facial fur has come in. They've got these cute little faces. They've got these big old floppy ears and they're covered in hair. And then once they go past that stage, that's when I feel like the individual personalities start to show. And you're Right. right. Now that I think about it. More than any other lemurs we have, I can see a photo. Oh, that's Agatha. I can recognize that face yeah. anywhere. And for all of these reasons, we all find I.I.s so fascinating. We hope that you'll continue to join us as we find out more about I.I.s and their unique place at the Duke Lemur Center and in Madagascar. Special thanks to Dr. Adam Hartson-Rose for joining us in this episode of I.I.Pod. Thanks for joining us on this Duke Lemur Center journey. Subscribe and discover more episodes each season. We look forward to sharing more about the Duke Lemur Center with you soon. And in the meantime, follow us on social media and visit us at lemur.duke.edu. A special thanks to Julie Bortz, who edited this episode. And thank you, and goodbye for now. From Matt and Megan and all the primates at the Duke Lemur Center.